Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Welcome everyone. It is an incredible honor today that I get to interview Vicki Robin. Hello, Vicki. Hi, Barry. <laughs> so Vicki Robin is someone that when I first came on the scene in 2001 and was a youngster um, beginning my financial therapy work, which I called conscious bookkeeping back in the day, I, you know, the, one of the very first books, if not the very first book up there with Jacob Needleman's book, was Vicky's book. And it's called Your Money or Your Life, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence. Um, it's been translated into many, many different languages. It's been a bestseller for so many years. It sounds like it's had many different iterations, 1992, 98. 2008, 2018. Yes, is that true? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's done all of those things, yeah. The the only really thorough update was the 2018 one. The others were, you know, sort of um, spiffing up and adding a few things, but the 2018 one was where I really made it relevant for another generation. And did that just come out? And, well, yeah, uh, yeah. We're at the end of the year, Okay. It came out in, in April. Um, okay. Yeah, and I can talk more about that later when we when we talk about, you know, some of the current um, the current trends in personal finance that are going on in the okay. world today. Sounds good. I do. I want to read just one or two paragraphs about the book, and then I'd love to hear your memories and experience and why you wrote it and who did you write it for and what's changed and all that. So. You had some great words and content on your site, and here's one of them. So in my 20s, this is you, I lived in several rural, rural communities, Rylander, Wisconsin, the coldest part of the lower 48, and Florence, Arizona, one of the hottest. And this gives you a clue about my approach. I call sustainability an extreme sport. I think it's cool to get into a hot issue by living the solution, not just conjecturing. My first book, Your Money or Your Life, came out of living as much by my wits and as little by money as I could. I wanted to question our dependency on money and on buying stuff. My partner, Joe Dominguez, developed a systematic way to spend less, earn more, save like a demon, and get out of making a dying, obviously the opposite of making a living, with enough years left to enjoy life. Together we wrote the book, which ended up selling a million copies around the world. That is incredible, mind-blowing to me. And then in the book, there's all these questions like, do you have enough money? Are you spending enough time with family and friends? Do you come home from your job full of life? Do you have time to participate in things you believe are worthwhile? Does your job reflect your values? And on and on and on. So, Vicki, if you would, will you share more? This is a long time ago, but you just redid it. But back then, what was going on in your life? And tell me more about this book. 
Yeah, thank you. It's fun to hear that uh, read. You know, you write things and then, you know, you go on and do other things. And so it was really fun to hear that little piece of writing. Yeah, so um, as as that writing says, you know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, on what I called the great adventure. You know, it's like I I graduated cum laude from Brown University and couldn't boil water. That's, you know, maybe I could boil water, but I couldn't cook anything in it. And um, so I, I in my 20s, I became fascinated with, you know, how do you actually live on the planet? So I did a lot of rural homesteading skills, building, um, et cetera, building and growing and hunting and butchering and, and wild crafting and, you know, a lot of things that have actually come around now again, people are interested in again. Uh, we called it back to the land back then. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, and, and then um, out of that, you know, I worked with Joe Dominguez and I, I teamed up with him and people kept asking us, you know, like, why don't you people have to make money, you know, and uh, so uh, we started like very small scale, just a couple friends in a living room. Um, and Joe tried to answer that question, like what actually had he done? Um, and <clears throat> yeah, so he tried to answer that question and he basically, he in reflection, he said, well, first I did this and then I did that and then I did that. And it eventually became a nine-step program, which is sort of like a, a holy grail now people do the nine-step program but it's really the process joe went through to sort of like peel away the layers of what is money what makes it work um why are people so miserable around it who's happy and what do the happy people know that the rest of us don't you know he just kept penetrating 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 into that and also worked on wall street uh, as a technical ana analyst uh he did not invest for himself, he knew that as soon as he started investing, he would go blind in terms of the crystal ball of predicting the markets. Uh, and so he, he worked for 10 years on Wall Street and retired by the time he was 30 in 1969. Um, so that's Joe, and I met him, and I eventually I applied his, his process to my personal finances and lived on very, very little. Uh, and then we just started to teach, you know, slowly, slowly in the living room, and then more interest, and so uh, we taught in a little basement of a bank, uh, not a bank, <laughs> that's a funny slip, a church. <laughs> in the, in the, uh, interesting, interesting, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got interest on that one. Anyway, um, so we just started teaching slowly, and, and we made a point of, of um, charging money, uh, but not keeping it. Uh, we were always giving away all the proceeds from the seminar to uh, some nonprofit group that we uh, we wanted to support. You know, we wanted our teaching to not be about uh, personal gain because then that belies the idea that we're financially independent. Uh, and also, you know, we really, really, really had a strong desire to, um, you know, intervene in the larger systems in this world and, and you know have a better outcome for everybody so that was we were doing the live seminar for uh, about a decade uh, and it became very popular we would have in the early 80s by the mid 80s we would have like 400 people at a time show up because uh, friends would tell friends would tell friends and it became burdensome to produce all these seminars so we put it on tape and then um, we made an audio and workbook course that sold really, really well. And by the end of the 80s, uh, we had started getting interviewed. You know, we were a little sort of um, odd sideshow. You know, it was like, huh, how do these people live on $5,000 a year? So there were stories that were being written about us uh, as sort of like freaks, you know, economic freaks. And at the same time, in the late 80s, uh, 1989, I attended the first international, first national hearing on what was called the Brundtland Commission Report, Our Common Future, which was the result of five years of commissioners uh, appointed by the United Nations traveling around the world uh, with this inquiry in communities in every country but the U.S., 
saying, you know, we're on a collision course between economic growth and environmental integrity. And what can we learn from you there in Zambia or South Africa or <clears throat> Colombia? You know, what what is your situation as the economy expands, as the world gets more urbanized? What is your situation? And basically, I went to this conference and all of the commissioners who traveled the world, plus the head of all the environmental organizations, were there, and I was just a little pipsqueak in the back of the room, but every single one of them came up to the podium and basically said the same thing, which is the single most destructive thing going on in the world today is the level and pattern of consumption in North America. And then they would shrug, like, well, you can't get between an American and their right to consume and by then, we've been teaching this program in Your Money, Your Life for uh, nearly 10 years and surveyed people who had actually applied the steps. And we found out that on average, if people actually did the steps, their consumption went down by 20 to 25%. And almost to the person, they were happier. And probably 75% couldn't even remember what they used to spend the money on. You know, so it was really, I knew that this process worked. It was transformational and people's lives were better, <laughs> and they they were doing the important thing about getting out of debt and having savings. So I'm sitting in the back of this room, this big auditorium, and thinking, my God, I think we're sitting on the solution to the world's biggest problem. Hmm. And that was, like, major for me. I was just like, I came home for that, and I was, like, on fire. <laughs> so the two things converged, you know, um, that experience that informed our sense of what the value of this program was. It wasn't just personal. It just wasn't helping individuals. It had a larger role. Uh, and right at that time, uh, a an agent contacted us and said, I read about you, and I think you have a book in there. Hmm. And so we just we said yes in uh, 1992, you know, like wrote the book. Uh, and... Uh, and down in the the basement of a a house we were sharing with something like seven other people, you know, a little um, with an IBM 286 computer and a pin drive, you know, the pin drive paper, and uh, with a you know my desk was a board that was across two file cabinets. Oh, so yeah. that's where I did. <laughs> Amazing. And, uh, and how yeah. did you and Joe connect? Were you colleagues? Were you romantic partners? Were you just someone who took up his, you know, methodology and did it so well yeah. that you started co-teaching with him? We How did that happen? Friends. We were just, we were, we used to say we're longtime friends and colleagues, you know. But it, mm-hmm. You know, indeed, he was my partner. He's my life partner. Um, and um, he was also my mentor uh, on everything about money. Uh, he was my friend. He's my playmate. So, yeah, all of that. <laughs> all that. So before we move forward, I do want to back up a little bit. You know, I can remember reading the book, and so many things stood out about time and money and energy and tracking all of that, you know, tracking time, which I was fascinated by bookkeeping systems, you know, but to be able to imagine tracking time um, was fascinating for me, which I got from your book. And I also have a vivid memory of imagining everything in my place, putting a price tag on it. Um, That was an exercise in your book, was go around to all your stuff and put a price tag on it so you can actually see um, where you've spent all your money. And that was I just remember that so clearly, Um, even though I was living very simply at the time, so simply. Anyway, I want to back up a moment because I'm thinking about your history and your family of origin and a little bit about your money story. And, you know, did did part of your journey come out of a reaction to that? Um, um, was it, did you grow up lower income, middle class from a wealthy family? And how did that influence you in your 20s deciding to, go back to the land, live very simply on $5,000 a month. Can you just share a little bit about... No, $5,000 a year. 
Oh, excuse me, that's what I meant. I meant $5,000 a year. Big difference. Yeah. Big difference. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, at that time, that was my big goal. I was like, I need to get to 5000 a month. That's why, you know, that's probably why that came in, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I I was born in 1945. I grew up, uh, I was formed by the 1950s. And um, I... Um, yeah, and I lived, and my, my father was a doctor, my mother was a housewife, and later she was a therapist. She studied and became a therapist. Uh, so I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a privileged family that had enough money. Um, my father died when I was 13, but he set aside money for my college, so that was never a problem, being able to go to college. I will say that I went to Brown University, and it cost a total of $10,000 at that time. For four years, um, just but of course there's been inflation, uh, and so I would say yes. I became I was one of those people who who went to college and became disaffected and wore black turtlenecks and jeans and smoked galois and you know it's just like I was I was a, a rebel. Um, we called it beatniks then, yeah. and. Um, yeah, so I, I I actually concocted a strategy to to go to uh, to take my junior year in Spain, uh, so I could like get out of the confines of of the United States and go and have an adventure. And in that year, I it was my first year that was I was managing my own money really on my own. And I just had this like basic understanding that the less money you spent, the further it went. You know, and for me, I'm, I love, I want to experience life. I, I take life in through my pores. It's not like something that I read about in a book or I, you know, watch a movie or somebody else is doing. I really have to have a direct experience. You know, sustainability is an extreme sport. Life is an extreme sport for me. And, and so I already had that knowledge that the less money I spent, the further it went. And I would say I buy my freedom with my frugality every day um, because, you know, and then you couple that with figuring out how to um, do everything for less, do, do everything for less, but it's not in service to some obsessive frugality. It's in service to getting closer to the, to the, to the, the marrow of existence. Um, so I already had that going when I met Joe, and I, what I also had was uh, my grandmother had died, and my brother and sister and I each um, inherited twenty thousand dollars. So that had given me enough money to start to like explore and you know back to the land and stuff like that. And and I met Joe, uh, and he told me how to that I could invest that money instead of spending it down and that I could have a, a small income based on from investments and I could continue on in this adventure of learning and growth. Uh, so that's what I chose to do. So, yeah, I guess, uh, was it rebellion? It might have been rebellion, but it felt more like a search, a search for something that was more meaningful. Um, yeah. And, you know, 20000 is a lot to some people. It's not a lot for other people, right? Um, and so when you receive that inheritance, it all just lined up and you said, it's time. It's time to just go back to the land. And did you have a goal of living on 5000 a mm -hmm. year at that time? And did that continue? You didn't? No, I didn't have a, I didn't have that goal. Um, I, I'm... I I will have to say that Joe was the systems thinker. He was he's a planner. He would plan things and then he would do them. I would do things and then see what, how it turned out. You know, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I was more like the person who do, does something that it's, it it seems like a good idea at the time, and so and very often it was. And even if it wasn't a good idea, I was able to make lemonade out of it. So. I just, you know, that's how I was when I was in my 20s. So it wasn't a plan. It wasn't an intention. It was a result of a choice of learning to live on the income that came in from that $20,000, which I invested at that time in um, treasury bonds, actually. They were Canadian 
dollar denominated uh, Canadian government bonds, and I got nine percent of my money, wow. which is like people would die for that now. Yeah, yeah, they would be very <laughs> excited to get. 9%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that provided enough income for me to live that kind of life where I could learn all the rural arts that I wanted to, and I just you know, said I would just you know I would just learn my way through everything, and um, I apprenticed myself to some old Lithuanian farmers and learned how to make uh, wine out of vegetable peelings, <laughs> you know, and I I just apprenticed myself to whoever was around that I could learn something from. Amazing. And so tell me more, anything more about the book as far as what was inside it and how far did that take you or how long did you go before you said, oh, I need to move into another territory or I need to focus on other areas Tell me about that journey because at some point Jill passed and then you mm-hmm. were then the main face and image for this work. Yeah, so the so the situation was that, that Joe is an introvert and I'm like an extrovert. I'm probably more introverted now as I get older. But uh, so we wrote the book, but he, he was no way was he going to like go on the road, travel, give talks, and I was totally clear that we could write the book and if we didn't do that part of it, you know, it was going to, you know, go into the dustbin of history as many books do. So I was eager to do the PR. So I've actually, even from the publication in 92, I was pretty much the face of it unless, you know, Joe would only do the national television show. So he, he and I were on Oprah the first time. And then the second time I was just on Oprah by myself. So I was the, you know, he was the genius behind it, and I was the face that that brought it to everybody. Uh, and um, we had made a dedication. Our our point was that by the year 2000, we were going to turn around this whole process of overconsumption. Really felt that we could do it. We were young, and uh, I'm of a boomer generation where we really thought we could change the world. And so that was the goal. And so when Joe died in the first weeks of 1997, I just kept going. It wasn't like heroic or picking up his work. It was just I kept going because I was doing it. And by the year 2000, it was clear that whatever this consumer system was, it was way more complex and way more um, um, virulent, if you will, than we could ever know. I mean, I hadn't had a political analysis of capitalism. You know, I wasn't, we weren't there. We were just trying to deal with this thing that was a byproduct of something that was much larger behind it that was pressing it out. Uh, and so that's when, it was in 2000 when I when I really stopped pushing on the money work. And I did many other things in those years. And one of them was I started something called Conversation Cafes. I was I was working on a theory that part of what keeps uh, consumerism in place is that people are relating to consumer products and not to one another, that we are becoming a, a siloed society. And so with some friends in Seattle, we built up this idea of conversation cafes. We actually built it after 9-11. We experimented before then and then thought, oh, we have, you know, just like with, the, you know, when I was at that conference in 89, I thought, wow, my God, we're sitting on a solution. We got Everybody's got to talk to each other or else we're going to, like, kill each other. So we built out that. It was, it was very exciting uh, to do that, and it's now a – an internationally recognized entry-level dialogue method that's used around the world. Um, and I got engaged in a group that was designing a training, how do we wake people up so that they actually will engage in larger issues, not because they're supposed to, but because you couldn't keep them away from it if you tried. So how do you ignite passion in people to make a difference in the world? Uh, and several other things. I, I yeah, several other big projects, and um, and eventually the project that captivated me was uh, I I started thinking, well, maybe we can't change the whole world, but maybe we can organize ourselves in local communities to weather whatever it is that's coming, whatever the storms are, whether it's climate change or political. That we need to organize ourselves in communities of place. So I started working on that. 
And one of the things I discovered is where I live, which is a semi-rural island, fairly large island, that um, even though you can drive up the island and see farmland, we really, if if we if the ferry stopped running and the bridge went down, we wouldn't we would have enough to eat for two weeks in August. That was our calculation. It's like a, it was it was sort of like doing your your um, survey that you mentioned in the beginning, where you go around and put a price tag on everything you have in your house, and you realize, oh my God, who am I as a consumer? Well, this was like doing a, a an evaluation of the population, the what grows well here, and 2,000 calories a day, and can we feed ourselves because we could get isolated. Um, and when I when I realized that, I thought, oh man. So this is this is what happens for me, you know. It's like, oh, there's got to be a solution. So I start working on it, and I ended up doing a 10-mile diet um, myself for a month. Like, could I survive only eating what grows within 10 miles of my home? Um, and I did that experiment, blogged about it, and boom, I got another book contract, and I wrote a book called Blessing the Hands of Feed Us. Which is such so a beautiful I, title, Blessing the Hands mm-hmm. That Feed Us. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was like, and, and you know, biting the hands that feed us, you know, the ingratitude that we express toward all that is given to us, almost free for nothing, just by being alive and and being in this society. So, yeah, I worked on that, and I worked on that for about five years. How do you strengthen local regional food systems? Um, and... Um, and then I had I was at a meeting. Well, let's, let's just stop there one second. I, what was that like for you? I mean, was oh. it were you able to do it? Was it more expensive? What, you know, how does it tie in with money? What was what was your experience oh. of yeah, doing okay. that experiment? Okay. Oh wow. Um, well, it was fascinating. Um, the first thing I realized is that there are certain things I wasn't going to live without. I, I wasn't like I was up for the adventure, but not up for suffering. So I gave myself. Um, sugar, so, uh, no, um, I gave myself salt, um, uh, coffee, uh, oh, God, what, there were two other things, lemons. Not chocolate, lemons, okay. No, no, not chocolate. That was like I discovered, you know, one of the, some, some, some psychologists did a study and they said there's, there's two kinds of people. There's the chocoholic and the crunchaholic. You know, the chocoholic <laughs> yeah. eats because of sadness, and the crunchaholic eats because of frustration. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, that makes sense. I'm the chocoholic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a crunchaholic. <laughs> yeah. So that was my issue. No, it's like um, lemons, salt, coffee, and what was the fourth thing? Olive oil. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, later, after I did all this, I realized, uh, the next year when I was trying to work on I realized I can just, I like I live just right by the water. I just walked into the water deep enough so that it wasn't like coming at the edge and got a jug of water and dried it. I had salt. So uh, you can make salt. I mean, it was sort of like what I did with the back to the land thing. How does this work? Um, so what I found, like the the glories of doing this, number one was about midway through doing this experiment and and the the sort of trying to find in my ten miles everything I needed to be satisfied as an eater uh and so it was like a daily effort <laughs> to find the food and then one day I'm standing in my backyard and I have a garden in my backyard, and I realized, wait a second. You know, food isn't in the grocery store. You know, that's an outlet for food. As a matter of fact, I found out that, you know, basically if the whole supply chain shut down, the food in the grocery store is enough for three days. In other words, the grocery store is a is sort of a, a stage set. It's, you know, you think food's in the store. It's not. If the trucks didn't come, there's no food in the store. The store doesn't make food. Um, I also discovered that my grocery store, there was only one thing, it's 10,000 items I could buy that was produced within my 10 miles, which was honey. Uh, and that was a shock. It's like, oh, my, we're just like completely woven into a global supply chain that we have no control over. Um, and that thing cracks, uh, and and we're really on our own. 
so it, I've got it. It's not in the grocery store. It's not necessarily in the farmers. I mean, that's definitely, it's not in my garden. It's all of those places. But actually, I realized I live in food. I am an animal. Animals live in landscapes that feed them. It's a complete mutuality and reciprocity process. I mean, otherwise, there would be no squirrels. There would be no um, nuthatches. There would be n nothing here because those animals wouldn't be able to find food. But we're the only animal that doesn't understand how to live in our landscape. So there was a a feeling of of it was like trembling. It was like I belong, and because I belong, I'm vulnerable. <laughs> you know, I really need to be in a reciprocal relationship with this landscape, which is the farmers and the grocers and the garden, but also in the fields and foraging. And I shifted from being a consumer in an industrial food system to being a, a relational eater in a living system. Um, and that has never left me, even though, you know, my, my eating is not, it's not, that was an extreme experiment. Right, right. And how were you earning a living at that time? Were you living on investments? Were you getting yeah. speaking gigs? Number no, one? I mean, my basic, my, my basic foundational security is from my investments. Uh, and I've um, over the years, every year I spend less than I have. I I bring in, so every year I've been saving, and then I've been reinvesting, saving, reinvesting, saving, reinvesting. So I got myself to a place where I have a basic foundational security, and then I do get money now from writing and speaking. Okay. But my foundation, I could stop doing that tomorrow, and I have a foundation. Um, but, you know, gloriously, uh, two book advances allowed me to have enough money to buy a house, which I, you know, which I then put in two mother-in-law apartments on the ground floor and started an Airbnb in my guest room. So my house is also a bank, you know. You got like some I, nice, yeah, you got some nice um, book, you know, advancements, right? You got some yeah, I did yeah. because of your yeah. money, your life. I mean, I've I've been blessed, you know. I mean, I, I, I'm I am not uh, somebody who thinks I'm a self-made person or, you know, I clawed my way up. Um, I have been blessed by uh, some book advances and also by that little inheritance, and also by a very positive attitude and um, a a. A, an enjoyment of frugality is when I when I realize that every dollar we spend is a lean against the resources of the planet. In other words, as we spend money, we are basically ordering more stuff from the bottom body of the earth. We don't think about that because it's totally invisible to us. So my frugality is also linked to uh, having the minimal flow from the body of the earth through my household and into the dump. Yeah. So yep. all of those things uh, work together. Um, you know, my house is like, you know, and now I have Social Security, but my house is like a third of my income. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, it's like if you are resourceful, if you are actually paying attention, there's so many things that you can do um, to live well on less. So frugality, I don't know if you said this, is an extreme, an extreme sport for you as well. It is. It is. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, it's like um, <laughs> there was a time, I, I also had cancer in, in 2004, and I'm a, an alum now, but um, when I had cancer, I needed to, um, I just needed for my soul to, like, separated. I was living in a, in a house with a whole bunch of other people. I just needed my own place. You know, I needed to do that experience and be, do it on my own. So moving out of that house, I realized, oh, God, I need more money. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've actually had to challenge my hyper-frugality, you know, since I, my mid-60s, 
because I actually needed more money in order to be able to actually survive. When I had cancer, I realized, you know, there was a treatment that I wanted to try that wasn't covered by insurance. And I thought, you know, I could die of frugality. You know, I don't want to be on my deathbed and going like, you cheapskate. <laughs> so I had, I've had to um, reshuffle my assumptions uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, but that doesn't mean I've been profligate. It just means that I've understood that I need more than I used to need when I was in my 20s and 30s. Yeah, I remember reading a few years back how much you were living on each month, and I thought, oh, does that mean she doesn't get paid for her speaking events and she doesn't travel? And and so what I'm hearing is that that's not true at all, but that recently when you made it through cancer, you realized you needed your own space and that you did need more cash flow income coming in. And what was the shift as far as your work in the world what did you shift to just say, hey, everyone, I'm doing this now? I, what, what shifted in your relationship to work and income to, to make mm. that increase? You know, it wasn't like a big deal. It was just I got a part-time job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And uh, I started realizing, you know, back in the day, uh, I was a full-time volunteer, and I was living on that minimal income and I realized I need to ask for money for things I do. So I had to set a speaker fee and I had to, you know, I had to pay attention to investing my life energy in such a way, not to limit myself in what I said yes to, but realizing that some of the things I said yes to had to produce an income. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it wasn't, it wasn't desperation. I mean, the biggest shift was shifting out of, hyper frugality that sort of attitude of like if I have to pay for it maybe I don't need it you know Um, and calling that an adventure and realizing wait a second you can't do that anymore Vicky there are things that you need one of them has been that as I've gotten older it's made a huge difference to me to be able to hire somebody for a few hours a week to help me out okay so these are some of the expenses that that um but it wasn't a big shift. It was the biggest shift was like cracking, you know, breaking the back of the hyper frugality and allowing myself to spend for what I needed. Hmm. You know, some people come to me, they'll write in and they'll say, "Hey, Barry, if I would if I would let myself pay for your class and just sign up for it, then all my issues would be resolved." Because my issue is that I'm so frugal and holding on to that so much that if I just let my spend let myself spend the money in your course, then my issues would be gone. <laughs> and I'll heal. Right. And I'll say, okay, interesting. So I hear that it wasn't this huge shift, but it was, and it was working for a long time. Your relationship with what you're calling frugality or frugality as an extreme sport, and then at some point you had other needs. Your life was shifting. You were getting older. You needed some more health. You needed health care support, and that required more cash. You know, and so you shifted slightly, um, and you stopped volunteering as much, and said, "Now it's time for a speaker fee." And will you will you share what the part time job was? Because that some people won't even go get a part time job. You know, they're just like, "No, I need to have my own business." Yeah. No, no, no. I just like it was. It's very simple. I had been. Um, I had. We had formed a foundation as a way to basically give away the money that came in from our teaching and uh, so I had been fundamentally the president executive director of a of a foundation um, an educational and charitable foundation for 20 years and haven't taken any money from it so I just basically talked to the board and got myself paid for what I was doing anyway for free so it was a very easy like one step I didn't have to like go out in the workforce um, but now I, you know, I live within my means and most of my income is passive income. Okay. Most of my income is social security, the rentals, uh, that I have in my house and one other rental that I bought. Uh, and, um, yeah, I do community investing. I invest in local businesses and then I, I get a certain income from that. And I have, uh, I still have U.S. Treasury bonds and, I do some socially responsible investing in companies that I think are like companies what I would like to see expand in the world. So 
it's not like I am, it's mostly I live on passive income. Mm-hmm. From all those sources, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and it's because I did the program in Your Money, Your Life, you know, and I, because I've been a saver and because I've always, like, come out of every year with more money than I than I had spent, you know, so I was always reinvesting, always reinvesting. I did it the traditional way. I just was frugal and I invested. And yeah. um, so here I am. Yeah, so similar to my mom. <laughs> she, yeah, I'm sure. uh, Yeah, I'm a child of one very frugal parent and one parent who loved to spend, you know, so very different. So that leads me to you've been on the journey for years doing um, these experiments and then naming it after and figuring it all out, but saving so early and going the traditional route of investing and now you have Social Security and there's the passive income, but there is an entire community of people that have made you their their maven or what's what word? <laughs> I mean, they, they've made you, I don't know, I don't like the word guru, but they've made you the matriarch of this retirement community, yeah, called for the fire community. So will you speak to that a, a little bit, how how this all happened without you necessarily planning that out? <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, so I, you know, as I say, it was around 2000 that I stopped uh, investing all of my life energy in in um, promoting and spreading and working on your money, your life, and all associated things. You know, we formed this foundation that was giving away the money from, um, you know, our teaching. And so it was a a little mini empire. And um, I I eventually left that, I mean, in part doing other projects and then in part because I had cancer. and so I really dropped out of the picture around money. I was not active um, until 2016 when I went to a conference um, that had open space sessions, you know, that I, so I just, I started to realize that it seemed like um, there was, people were having a lot of trouble with money and I just, like, suggested let's get together whoever's interested let's to get together and talk about our relationship with money and half the conference came to that session that was really interesting and and all we accomplished was do a go around of the circle and i realized everybody in that circle about 50 people uh was in fear about money and from somebody in their 80s who had millions to somebody in their 20s who had uh or yeah early 20s who had twenty thousand dollars of debt and was planning to go on to graduate school and just continue doing the debting process. Um, and I was like, oh, my, maybe I need to get back into your money or life, especially talking to the young people and realizing they are being bamboozled. It was like, you know, they've just been told, don't worry about going into debt because you'll always make it back. That's how, that's your college is your ticket to a middle class lifestyle. And I realized that is not true anymore. That is not a guarantee. And so these young people are being put into a lifetime of debt for degrees that they have no idea how they're going to monetize. Um, and a liberal arts education is a great luxury, but, it, you know, if, if you spend the rest of your life in debt for it, you know, what's what's the deal? So, I mean, I was very vivid. <laughs> my, you know, oh, my God, the banks have discovered our young people as a profit center and I just like, you know, my mother bear was like, no, this will not happen. So I, I undertook to uh, do an update of the book. I, I wasn't eager to do it, but I thought I want to do it for millennials. I want to make this book relevant because it's, it's, it's in obscurity. Nobody I know knows about it. So little did I know that there was this whole subculture that I had was completely off my radar um, that was very into your money, your life, and some of the more recent bloggers, particularly Mr. Money Mustache was one of the early, he's 2011, he started blogging, um, about basically hyper-frugality, saving a lot of money, investing it, what those guys like to invest in is, is index funds, and living on passive income and liberating yourself for the rest of your life. You know, So he started writing about that, and then now there's up to, 2,000 personal finance bloggers, you know, maybe 
30 or 40 really popular fire bloggers, which is financial independence, retire early. Uh, so I discovered them after I had signed a contract, after I'd started doing the update. And I was stunned. I was just stunned. Somebody told me there's something called Reddit and there's a financial independence subreddit. So I, I, I look it up and it's like a couple hundred thousand people in there in that group. And then now, just two years later, not even two years later, a year and a half later, there's 450,000 people in that Reddit group. So just in the last 18 months, it's it's blown up. Uh, and then um, this uh, somebody sent me a link to an article on CNBC Money, and it, some guy said it, you know he had no money, and then he was a millionaire by the time he was 30, and he read all the financial books, and the best one was Your Money, Your Life. I thought, well, that's sweet. You know, <laughs> and I go over to Amazon, and it was number one on Amazon, not in any category. It was just number one. So I contacted him and said, thank you. And then through him, I got introduced to some of the, 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 um, the, what do you call it? The sort of the architecture and strategy and of how these people in the fire movement are making their money, blogging, monetizing their blogs. I started to learn about this whole universe. One of the bloggers, when I contacted her, said, oh, my God, you're Eve of Adam and Eve. <laughs> so Yes, uh, for that movie, yes, for that community, for that yeah, huge community. I, I would say, too, that in the, you know, going back to the earlier story, that in the 90s, um, we, were, we were serving people who really had an interest in sustainability, environment, um, spirituality, uh, voluntary simplicity, back to the land, you know, that was our subculture. And those are the people we were trying to help. And the byproduct of helping those people, if we could reach enough of them, was that we were going to actually shift the cultural, um, the cultural landscape. This generation is up to something different. They are, they are more focused just on the, the money strategy and actually by and large, don't seem to have a higher purpose for what they're doing, just other than it's a it's a brutal world out there. I mean, this is what I saw, you know, it's like young people are fledging, in, you know, they fledged post-2008 financial crisis. They, they started their financial lives in a very different position than I did. You know where it's it's a it's a receding horizon, and it's very difficult to even get out of your parents' house and 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 even rent, much less buy, or even very difficult to imagine having children because you can't even afford them. Um, so, um, yeah. So I really, you know, I understand why the focus has to be, and then the 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 jobs are just. Um, a lot of them are big call centers or, you know, like uh, programming or user experience for some major corporation. They are they don't have anything that's like noble about it. This is, you don't feel like you're part of something that's greater that you're willing to put your shoulder to the wheel. And, and you know, it's just it's it's inhumane. So I understand why young people have have uh, uh, grabbed onto this as something that is an escape route from a, a deadening, meaningless life and but and why it doesn't partake of some of those, you know, more grandiose values that we we had the privilege of of having back twenty, thirty years ago. Right. And so a big portion of this community is hundreds of thousands of twenty, thirty thirty year olds, the millennials. Is is that what you're saying? Yeah, 20, 30, and some 40-year-olds. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. not so many older people. It's fascinating to me. I mean, we know that retirement, as it used to be, doesn't exist. And I'm fascinated with seeing different creative solutions. You know, I'm Gen X, so work needs to be so meaningful to me, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I don't want to retire. I mean, I... I want to keep doing my work, but you kept doing your work. You know, you were just living on passive income from other sources instead of the work directly. 
right? You set up your foundation, Correct. right, where I'm living on the income that comes in from doing the work that I love, right? Um, and it's such an interesting thing to be in the middle of these generations, but this fire community is a lot of millennials. It's a lot of men, yeah, and I right. and I do want, I mean, it's fascinating to me. It's very extreme, and some people love it, Um and I do wonder, like, where's the deeper meaning behind it for them? Like, how are they serving and contributing, you know? Because, um, interesting, I spoke with one person who is retired in her late 20s, you know, and which was wonderful for her. She loved that. She was still doing work she loved. But she still, there was still a lot of mind chatter and a lot of emotions that were unexplored, like when the check would come and who's supposed to pay for it since she's retired, should she always pick up the check? But what if she doesn't want to? And But she should be generous. And, you know, I, I love all that internal chatter and love to help people understand what are the emotions that are come that come up and give them the tools to work through them, right? Even if they are retired at 20 or 30 or won't be retired, right, retired until later. Um, do you have like t- a tool or two or, or suggestions for folks mm-hmm. or in this area of being able to retire in a creative way? I mean, we've talked about so many just in what you've done and how you've lived your life. Is there anything else that you can think of in this moment? Mm. Yeah, so uh, I think FIRE is a an adorable acronym uh, but I think it's got a poison pill inside of it. Uh, and I don't think it's really in somebody's life cycle to imagine that they're going to retire as in not work when they're in their 30s. You know, that's your 30s is when you're you're started, starting to build yourself out. Yep. You're starting to, like, who am I in this world and what is the world anyway and where do I fit and how can I make a difference? You know, those are the questions you have in your 30s and your 40s. You feel like, ah, now I've got something underneath me. Now I can um, (laughs) – I'm just laughing because I I have – I've bought my cat two kittens and she's not taking to them yet and there was just about to be a hissy fit just over here with the cat. So anyway (laughs) – Uh, so yeah, I just I think retiring early. I think retiring itself is an odd concept. I don't think there was that concept. It's a byproduct of the industrial revolution. It's a byproduct of industrialization that makes a whole bunch of the population have meaningless work. Uh, it was originally uh, you got pensions if you served in the military uh, because people got beaten up, and um, so it's just you know. It's a word we use now, but it doesn't historically. Historically, humans want to contribute from the day they're born to the day they die, and there's just different forms of contribution that you make. You're part of something that's more intact, whether it's a family or a community or a profession or a network. You're part of something. You're part of an intellectual process. I don't care if it's left, right, or center. You're part of something, and and the best thing is to be able to contribute to it. That's what everybody wants. So this idea of making work wrong and retirement right is a, is it's just it's a <laughs> it's a false god. Um, and and so I think yes, you want to be able to leave deadening jobs, meaningless activities. You want to be able to leave that. You want to have some financial security so you can find out who you are and apply yourself to what's more important to you than money. That's the deal. And, you know, for some people, their professions are their their passions. Not everybody. Yep. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a, the lucky few who have managed to put that together for themselves. I make a distinct, distinction between work, job, income and identity and all of those things are conflated in our society so your job is your income is your work is your identity so you retire you get rid of the job 
And you don't, you know, because you have and you solve for income, you have passive income, but you still have to figure out what is my work and who am I in this world? What's worth, what am I here for? That's the big work of life. And I don't, I think people walk off a cliff. God bless, because it's work to be done. If you don't do the work, uh, very often after a couple of years of travel and learning guitar or foreign language or whatever you do, you'll go back to work. You know, you'll go back to a job because that's a wonderful way to structure your time and be in a social setting with other people um, and feel normal. You know, so retirement isn't, I don't think it's a, it's a really great purpose. <laughs> so that's what I would say about that is that I think um, I keep the word keeps coming up from the old Kurt Vonnegut book, uh, Cat's Cradle of Grand Falloon, that he called it. it. It's an it's an idea in society that everybody thinks is true, and it's just a bunch of baloney. Uh, so I think that's sort of a bunch of baloney. I mean, yes, if you we all want to save enough to be able to when we slow down, when we get ill you know, to be able to support ourselves through years when we just don't have the the energy, ambition, and maybe even health to produce an income. And it's very important to do that for yourself. The society doesn't do it for you, so you have to do it for yourself. But it doesn't mean you stop working unless you really can't. I mean, even if you're just, you can't walk, you can be a granny with a lap, you know. It's like, and that's what's fulfilling and I don't mean you have to do it if you want to sit on a beach for the rest of your life, you know, do it. But I don't think it's ultimately going to be interesting enough to keep your attention for 40 or 50 years. I really appreciate everything that you just shared. I, I really do. And I wonder if you have a resource for people who have lots of different creative living options or living experiences. You know, I'm thinking of someone I included in my book. She chose she had some savings but she chose to live really simply in her 60s and moved to New Zealand and bought a big bus and then found a community to live on and then eventually started doing her consulting again you know but needed needed a break and then came back in and i just love hearing creative stories like that do you have a resource or a place where you you see a lot of those stories you know, I mean, I think, uh, well, number one, people can join the Your Money, Your Life community on Facebook, and there are some stories emerging there. You know, Facebook groups are, are you know, they have their ups and downs. Um, I think I, I think there are a lot of interesting people in the relocalization movement, like Transition Towns, Relocalization, Resilience.org, uh, people who have a larger systems analysis of that the world is, you know, our way of life is, is unraveling as we speak and are trying to build something new. I think those those folks are really exciting to be around uh, in their, their being solutionaries. Um, I think the um, there are blogs, you know, if you go on Mr. Money Mustache uh, or um, Millennial Money, uh, there's a bunch of really great blogs that are documenting people who are in the fire movement and the strategies that they do. Like just even Pete Abney, who's like Mr. Money Mustache, uh, what he did is, is, is he liked building. He did a lot of building projects around his home, you know, after he had enough to live on. Um, and he kept making money. He makes a gobs of money now on his blog. And what he did with his surplus capital is he bought a community center, he bought an old warehouse building um, in the town he lives in, and he called on all the, uh, they called them mustachians. So he called on all the mustachians uh, to come and help him um, uh, remodel it and make it into this community center. And so it's a community center. You know, so then if you have, if you have money like that, you can do whatever you want. You know, if I had gobs of money, honestly, the thing I would do um, is, uh, we have a big affordable housing problem on uh, where I live. And I keep thinking that uh, I think there's like an EcoPod mobile home park that wants to happen, some model like that. And I would, if I had millions of dollars, I might 
try to get that thing going. You know, so so basically I have a happy life. I'm working on a lot of issues. I work I have all sorts of community groups. But I also have dreams, you know, bigger yeah. bigger things that I would do if I had the money. Yeah. Um and, and then the other thing is, is there is there keep going, keep going. Yeah. The other thing is the foundation for uh for intentional community, the co housing groups, you know, any place where people have intentionally stepped off of the uh, dominant track to make a track that makes more sense to them, you know, whether it's permaculture or relocalization or intentional community or co-housing communities, that's where the interesting stories are. Wonderful. So I want to complete by reading one or two more paragraphs from your site that I loved, and it says, I'm over 70, and I now know what those old people meant about the older you get, the less you know. For all my adventures when I was younger, I feel freer now, more open, less agended, and more in mystery about how anything might turn out. When I was younger, I believed my friends and I were going to save the world. Now life seems like an infinite faceted gem, a marvel as well as a terror, full of possibilities rather than one big job. Like Alice in Wonderland, I think life just gets curiouser and curiouser, I still dive into experiments and truth, but truth, I'll get back to you on that after I die. And the last one is, Studs Terkel said the purpose of life was to make a dent. Maybe that means to have some small impact. Make your scratch on eternity. I'm going to say that again. Make your scratch on uh, make your scratch on eternity. Maybe it means to take all our shiny ideas and dent them a little so we can drive around in them without pretense enjoying a sunny day. So, Vicki, I have so much more to ask you about, but I'm so grateful for your life, for your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you're such a solution. What do you call it? A solutionary. Solution. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. love it. You You follow the thread from the micro to the macro until you have a solution. Um, you're such a visionary and large thinker in that way, um, and you still have so so much ideas of what you still want to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. May I may I die in mid sentence? <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for reading from that bio I wrote uh, that personal statement because I, I haven't looked at that in a year or two and it's it is nice, isn't it? Yeah. It is it's very neat. So anything that you want to leave us with? Any anything else? Yeah, I, I think it's you know that it's it's interesting. Money is important. It's not not important. We live in money. We live in a money society. Maybe we have ideals of like transcending money or, you know, like there's there's lots of big ideas about how exchange uh, based on love could happen in an ideal world. But we live in this world and a piece of this world is that we all have a relationship with money that we need to examine and make work as well as possible with the least amount of illusion and the most amount of clarity. Um, but it's not everything. It's not, your, it's not who you are. It's not your dreams. It's not your purpose. It's, it's, it's something you do with integrity and clarity uh, and um, so that you liberate the rest of your time for friendship, and romance, and marriage, and children, and community, and art, and, you know, you allow that other part of yourself that sort of dies on the vine of the economy, you allow, you water that part, and allow that part to flourish. Um, so that's, I guess, what I would say. Vicki, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Yeah. My pleasure. Really, I I love being in the field of our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you. 
whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic, body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.